Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and today I'll continue my conversation about Edward Said's Orientalism. And in today's video, I will basically cover page 35 and 36. Now, if you have been watching these lectures, you already know that we are in chapter one, and Said stages this speech by Balfour, Alfred Balfour in the British Parliament where he's making a case for continuous British presence in Egypt. And it is in his statements that Said is tracing this subjectivity of an Orientalist, an administrator who is employing the vocabularies of Orientalism. And on pages 35 and 36, Balfour talks about Egypt and then talks about Lord Cromer, the former in charge British official of Britain. And it is in that language how he places Cromer's role and how Balfour sees himself as well as sees Cromer's role in Egypt that Said is introducing us to this imperial mindset which could have only been underwritten by an Orientalist mode of looking at Egypt and other places in the Orient. Now, I'm going to do a brief reading of the passages from page 35 and 36 first. There's a lot, a lot to unpack here and then I'll come back and explain what is said in the pages, but also I want to go into a brief historical explanation of how Egypt came to be a British territory, right? And what was Colonel Arabi's um, revolt, and how had Egypt become an autonomous region from the Ottoman Empire, because all of that is important. So let's go and read, and then... I'll come back and talk about it. An excellent case in point, and Balfour was perfectly aware of how much right he had to speak as a member of his country's par parliament on behalf of England, the West, Western civilization about modern Egypt. For Egypt was not just another colony. It was the vindication of Western imperialism. It was, until its annexation by England, an almost academic example of Oriental backwardness. It was to become the triumph of English knowledge and power. Between 1882, the year in which England occupied Egypt and put an end to the nationalist rebellion of Colonel Arabi, and 1907, England's representative in Egypt, Egypt's master, was Evelyn Baring, also known as Overbearing, Lord Cromer. On July 30, 1907, it was Balfour in the Commons who had supported the project to give Cromer a retirement prize of £50,000 as a reward for what he had done in Egypt. Cromer made Egypt, said Balfour. Everything he has touched, he has succeeded in. Lord Cromer's services during the past quarter of a century have raised Egypt from the lowest pitch of social and economic degradation until it now stands among Oriental nations, I believe, absolutely alone in its prosperity, 
financial and moral. How Egypt's moral pro pro prosperity was measured, Belfort did not venture to say. British exports to Egypt equaled those to the whole of Africa. That certainly indicated a sort of financial prosperity for Egypt and England, someone unevenly together. But what really mattered was the unbroken, all-embracing Western tutelage of an Oriental country from the scholars, missionaries, businessmen, soldiers, and teachers who prepared and then implemented the occupation to the high functionaries like Cromer and Balfour, who saw themselves as providing for, directing, and sometimes even forcing Egypt's rise from Oriental neglect to its present lonely eminence. Success in Egypt was as exceptional as Belfort said, it was by no means an inexplicable or irrational success. Egyptian affairs had been controlled according to a general theory expressed both by Belfort in his notions about Oriental civilization and by Cromer in his management of everyday business in Egypt. The most important thing about the theory during the first decade of the 20th century was that it worked and worked straggingly well. The argument, when reduced to its simplest form, was clear. It was precise. It was easy to grasp. There are Westerners and there are Orientals. The former dominate. The latter must be dominated, which usually means having their land occupied, their internal affairs rigidly controlled, their blood and treasure put at the disposal of one or another Western power. That Balfour and Cromer, as we shall see, soon see, could strip humanity down to such ruthless cultural and racial essences was not at all an indication of their particular viciousness. Rather, it was an indication of how streamlined a general doctrine had become by the time they put it to use. As you can see, there is a lot to unpack in these two pages. So the main crux of the argument is the same. How does a powerful official of the British government speak about Egypt, right? And what does it take to speak about Egypt in this way? Now, we already know that there is knowledge produced about Egypt, that the British functionaries working there think of themselves having a mission and having the power not just to think what they think of Egypt, but to shape it according to that imagination. Now, Evelyn Baring is crucial because he practically ran Egypt, right? And the speech, Balfour's speech, the citation comes from when he, in a parliament session after Baring retires from Egypt, had argued that he should be given a 50,000 pound prize or pension for having served so brilliantly in Egypt, for having made Egypt, right? So what Said is arguing here is that Egypt has no say in its own making. It becomes what it is according to the wishes and imagination of the British officials. And that imagination, that way of looking at Egypt or talking about it is mediated through scholarly works, through research, through policy, all of that forms part of the consciousness of Cromer, right, for whom Belfort is advocating, and 
Balfour himself, right? Another thing that we need to like unpack here is the history of Egyptian occupation. How did it happen, right? Because that's crucial. There is a reference to Colonel Arabi's revolt. Uh, there is probably going to be a reference to Ali Pasha and others. So let's talk a little about how does modern Egypt end up in the French and British hands first and then eventually as a British colony or as a British protectorate. Let's talk about that a little. So the Egypt that Napoleon invaded in 1799 was technically still a vilayat of the Ottoman Empire, but with the most dominant group there being the Mamluks. Now, Mamluks were the one who had ruled Egypt after the fall of Baghdad till about 1500s. And these were specialized slaves of Turkic and Albanian and other origins who were specially trained in warfare and statecraft, and they would eventually win their freedom. Now, the famously Beberus was one of these Mamluks who defeats the Halaku Khan forces at uh, Ain Jalut and hence stems the tide, the rise, the further advances of the Mongol armies. Now remember the Mongols had sacked Baghdad in 1298. So Mamluks rule Egypt as their own territory until 1500s when the rise of the Ottoman Empire, Egypt kind of becomes a loose vilayat or territory of Ottoman Empire. Now when Napoleon enters there and uh, launches his ground warfare, of course his opposition also is coming from Britain. <clears throat> and British naval forces pretty much destroy his armada and the Ottomans send two expeditionary forces to expel the French. And then after Napoleon leaves there is a vacuum created there and that's when the Sultan from Turkey sends Muhammad Ali Pasha to put down the resistance and to absolutely get rid of the Mamluks. And Muhammad Ali Pasha does that, but in the process, since he plays both sides and has really loyal supporters, and the public also supports him, he declares himself the Amir of Egypt. Right? And he takes the title of Khadiv, which comes from Persian to Arabic and Turkish. And hence, from his time, in 1805, Egypt is called uh, Khadiv of Misr. Right? And he takes the title of Khadiv of Misr, but the Ottoman Empire doesn't recognize it until the time of his grandson. Now, uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha initiates a massive restructuring of Egyptian economy, urbanization, and everything else, and puts Egypt on the road to modernity. And then the, it is during the times of his grandson, Ismail Pasha, that the famous Suez Canal project is launched, and Ismail Pasha also kind of revitalizes the urbanization process, building roadways and everything, and invests heavily in infrastructure. And in order to raise money, of course, he goes to his European creditors and borrows a lot of money from there. 
And he's also relying on cotton, which is a major cash crop for Egypt at that time. And increasingly so because the American cotton is not coming in because of the American Civil War. But the moment American Civil War ends and American cotton enters the market, Egypt loses its share of global cotton exports and hence, you know, Ismail Pasha now doesn't have enough money to cover his debts. And it is that situation in which he is forced into this relationship with Britain and France to accede power to a French and uh, an English appointed person to oversee his finances. And that's where Evelyn Baring enters. He's brought from India. And that's where he increasingly starts having huge influence in Egypt. Hence, Balfour can say that he made Egypt, even though we know historically that Egyptians themselves were trying to make Egypt. Now, during this time, Ismail Pasha's time, there is a rebellion by military officers led by Colonel Arabi. And that's the Arabi rebellion that he's talking about. It's widespread. And Ismail Pasha tacitly supports it. And because of that, he is ousted, right? And his successor is brought in. And his successor is the one who completely concedes the power to the British. By 1882 then, right, Britain was directly controlling and running Egypt and they had also isolated French and sent them out of Egypt and Egypt becomes British territory. So that's the history within which Evelyn Cromer's role is being mentioned here as the architect of modern Egypt as someone who made Egypt. And what the point that Said is trying to make is that in this entire process, Egypt is seen as this passive thing, as this passive place where the native cultures or the native policies do not really matter. And Egypt enters history, especially European imagination, as a construct of European power, right? And, the, and that this right to claim control over Egypt or to claim that Britain made Egypt, that Cromer made Egypt, is uncontested, at least in the British Parliament at that time. And the reason it is uncontested is because these people like Balfour and Cromer have internalized through the discourse of Orientalism. There is a passage here which I read where he, Said mentions how this information was fed to these administrators, and that is the discourse of Orientalism, which in so many different ways informs this kind of worldview in which Egypt in the Middle East, in the Orient, is offered as this poster child of colonial dispensation. So that's what comes across in these pages. Uh, I know I haven't done a lot of reading here, but my hope is to go chunk by chunk and talk about not just what is in the book as to why certain people are mentioned and what is the back history of the context within which they are mentioned. Thank you so much. I hope this is useful to you. Um, please continue watching this series and I will be back with more. Okay. Until then, thank you so much. Peace and love.